Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is for you. Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today's case is one that is going to make your blood boil. It certainly enraged me and it probably will you too. There is some rather graphic sexual content, so please be warned about that. Uh, And again, there is a lot to unpack, so let's get started. This is the murder of Cindy Gladue. Ivy Gladue was born on July 23, 1974, to her mom Donna McLeod in Athabasca, Alberta. Admittedly, Cindy was the result of a one-night stand, so she didn't really know her father until she was about 30 years old. Cindy was an only child for her first five years until her mom married Henry Houle, uh, and the trio then moved to Calling Lake, Alberta, and Donna had three more children, Kevin, Jeff, and Marilyn. But Henry liked to drink, and with his drinking, his temper flared, taking it out on Donna. So Donna packed up and left, moving her and her four children to Edmonton. Now, side note here, Henry later died from a drowning accident in 2012. Once in Edmonton and away from the stress of her stepfather's wrath, Cindy flourished. She spent her time riding bikes, drawing, playing volleyball, and of course, Nintendo. Donna kept a clean house, always made sure there was food on the table for her children. She worked very hard. And then she remarried Lawrence McLeod, who did not abuse Cindy's mother. And Cindy got along with him quite well. And by 1989, a fresh-faced and big-haired Cindy was ready to take on the world. She was witty and strong-willed and had a tight group of girlfriends, Vanessa and Tanya, who attended W.P. Wagner High School with her making a pact at her grade 9 prom that they would stay friends until they were old and grey. But life doesn't always work out like it should or you want it to, and by the middle of her 10th year of school, Cindy found herself with some new friends, and the drinking and skipping school started. Now, Cindy never did finish high school. Instead, she dropped out and took up a job uh, cleaning a hotel. In 1996, by the age of 22, Cindy gave birth to a daughter, Brianne, Uh, She was scared and excited about being a mom. She got her own apartment, and in 1999, she then had another daughter named Brandy. 
And around this time, Cindy did lose custody of both girls due to her drinking and drug use. But with Donna's help, she was able to regain custody. And in 2001, a third daughter, Cheyenne, was born. Although Cindy continued to struggle with alcohol and crack cocaine, she is remembered by her daughters as someone that cherished cooking shows and was known for her homemade breakfast and her apple crisp. She also loved to draw and the music of Motley Crue. She had a very big heart. One of her often quotes was, life goes on, what can you do anyways? Cheyenne's father was a man named Kelly Yakubowski, who was a Ukrainian-Canadian working in construction, who by all accounts treated all three of Cindy's girls like his own. Many times when Cindy's drinking would become too much, the girls would stay with him or with Donna. But by 2010, their romantic relationship was pretty much finished. And instead, she took up with a man named Stephen Reed. Now, Stephen wasn't a great guy, and he fully admits to being an alcoholic himself. But the two of them together were pretty codependent, and they started supporting themselves and their addictions by rummaging garbage bins for bottles to return and living basically on the streets of Yellowhead Corridor East, which is an area of town described by a website called Living in Canada, where you have a 1 in 11 chance of being the victim of a crime. Cindy would sometimes trade sex for cash, splitting her rewards with Stephen. Sometimes they crashed at a seedy hotel bars and sometimes at his cousin's house, but mostly the streets was home for them at that time. However, at times they did stay with her mom and visited her girls getting up in the morning and making one of her hearty, amazing breakfasts. On the night of June 16th, 2011, had been one of those nights, but the next morning she had to go to a doctor's appointment and she said she couldn't stay to cook breakfast. And Donna said to her jokingly, Cindy, when you're gone, who's going to cook for me? Now, sadly, these were the last words that Donna would ever say to Cindy. On June 19th, 2011, about 1,500 kilometers south of Edmonton in Idaho was a trucker named Bradley Barton. Barton lived in Mississauga, Ontario, but his work as a trucker often took him out of town. A heavy smoker, moderately overweight, and the father of twin boys. Him and a couple of guys were tasked with loading up the contents of this house and moving it to Edmonton. But as they arrived in Edmonton, they learned that the job was on hold for a couple of days. Now, one report said it was due to the shipment not clearing customs, but the Canadian border is a good thousand kilometers from Edmonton. So I'm not sure how they could be in Edmonton, but the shipment was delayed. But whatever the reason, Bradley was in Edmonton that night and checked into the Yellowhead Inn and immediately headed for the Lady Luck Bar for a few drinks. While outside the bar on a smoke break, he met Stephen Reed. And as conversations sometimes do between newfound drinking buddies, the subject of Barton wanting to be with a woman came up. This is despite Barton being in a common law relationship at the time. But you know, a night away from the wife can be really hard on some guys and they get lonely. And Stephen, being a stand-up guy and someone that likes to help, told him he knew a woman. So he went home, wherever that was, and told Cindy, Hey, you can earn 60 bucks by sleeping with this guy that I met. And Cindy, liking much self-esteem at the time and being low on cash, agreed. So her and Stephen went back to the bar and Stephen waited outside while Cindy went with Barton and earned, and I mean earned, her $60. Bradley was a gray-haired, pot-bellied pig of a man. About an hour later, Cindy emerged with her $60 in cash and the pair bought a six-pack of beer and a half gram of crack and went home. The following night, Barton was back at the Lady Luck and again looking for Cindy. Stephen again told Cindy about it, and as she had been drinking quite heavily that day from the $60 from the night before, she hopped in a cab and headed back to the Yellowhead Inn. Cindy met up with Bradley and one of the co-workers that he was in town with, Kevin Atkins. 
The three shared a few drinks, and Cindy had already been pretty inebriated when she had arrived, and Cindy and Bradley headed to Bradley's room at 12.42 a.m. Bradley shot back at Kevin, watching them walk away, do you want a piece of this young lady? To which Kevin declined, saying he was going to bed. Bradley reminded him that what happens on the road stays on the road, and the two entered room 139. The next morning, Bradley checked out of the hotel and got into his co-worker John Sullivan's van, where John said cheerfully, we're going to have a good day today, and Bradley said, well, not when the police show up. To which John was like, what are you talking about? And Bradley told him that there was a girl in his hotel room bleeding. He said that he had gone to the room with Cindy and she had performed oral sex on him. And when he started to manually stimulate her with his fingers, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be graphic here, but you need the details. He said that when he pulled his hand back, there was blood and he refused to pay her because she had her period. So he just went to bed and Cindy went to the bathroom to wash up. Like she's thinking, no biggie, don't pay me, no worries. And when he woke up in the morning, there she was in the bathtub bleeding and passed out. So, of course, John said, buddy, like, you got to call 911. So instead of just calling 911 from any phone, he went to the front desk and said he needed his key card back because he left some papers in the room when he checked out. And he went back to the room that Cindy was still laying in to make the call. And at 8.03 that morning, he used his returned key card to open the door and sat on the edge of the bed and dialed 911. What Bradley told the dispatchers was, quote, it's a long story. I woke up and there was a girl in my bathroom frigging covered in blood. When asked if she needed an ambulance, he said, I don't know. I don't know. I never touched her. She was in the hotel and we were all partying and that. And she came back, had a shower and I fell asleep on the bed and I woke up this morning and she's laying in the tub with blood all over the place. A maintenance worker, Daniel Chartrand, was alerted that a call for help had been made. So he rushed to the room where Brad was on the phone with to dispatchers. He asked what seems to be the problem and he just casually pointed to the bathroom. And when Daniel looked in, he saw blood in a pair of women's legs dangling from the bathtub, and he turned and left, getting the heck out of Dodge, leaving Barton, and went back to the front desk to wait for paramedics so that he could lead them to the room. Constable Dean Ducart and Casey Sled arrived five minutes after the call and could smell the stench of death as they approached room 139. Barton was still on the bed with his back turned to them, still on the phone. Dean recalled that, quote, there was blood on two of the walls in the bathtub as well as inside the bathtub, and there was a body inside the tub. Cindy was naked and all of the blood appeared to be dried. The shower curtain was closed about a third of the way. He said he checked for a pulse, but she was already cold. He wasn't able to tell where the blood had come from, as there wasn't any obvious sources for the bleeding like a stab wound. He also found a bag of women's clothes under the sink. In the room itself, he saw the blankets and sheets from the bed on the floor in a pile between the bed and the wall and noticed that there was a lot of blood on them. Casey Sled instructed Barton to stand up and told him that he was being detained for questioning and asked him if he wanted a lawyer. But Barton said, no, I didn't do anything. I'm married and I don't do this stuff. Barton was interviewed that day and gave his ridiculous story and then released because by that time they didn't have a cause of death. Her family was notified and they made it sound like it was probably natural causes or an overdose. So Bradley just went to Calgary to do a job for work, like nothing had happened until the autopsy report came back that Cindy had died as a result of an 11 centimeter, which is just under half an inch, sharp injury to the vagina. 
They were not able to determine what time she had died that night or how long it took her to bleed to death from the injury. At best estimate, she was alive for 30 minutes. Her blood alcohol was four times the legal limit, meaning she couldn't have consented to sexual activity. Bradley was arrested on June 24th in Calgary and charged with first-degree murder. Now remember, it's first-degree when a death of a person happens during the committing of another felony, and rape, of course, is a felony, and since she couldn't have provided consent due to her alcohol limit, it was rape. On that, we can all agree, I think. But enter defense attorney Dino Botto of Botto's Law Group, who didn't agree with any of it. Now, by the time all this went to trial in March 2015, Barton had revealed that he had initially lied that he didn't really know her. He did know her as a prostitute, his word, not mine, and he didn't know what had killed her, referring to it as an act of God. But he also lied again to two undercover officers in the transport from Calgary to Edmonton, saying that it was two guys he worked with that left her there. So clearly the guy was a liar and not a reliable witness. The Crown, fronted by Carrie Ann Downey, alleged, rightfully so, that she had not consented to sex that she couldn't have, and that Barton had intentionally inserted some kind of weapon into her vagina to kill her based on the evidence by the initial medical examiner who determined the injury was caused by a sharp instrument, an instrument that they never found in the investigation. But the defense said that they had consensual rough sex due to the implied consent of Cindy Gladue being that she worked in the sex trade, and she died based on the exam by a second doctor, Dr. Paul Sinkhorn, who was not a medical examiner but an obstetrician and testified that he had seen similar injuries from sex toys and through childbirth. He claimed that it was blunt force injury to the vaginal wall that had caused the rupture. Quote, in my opinion, there was an overstretching of the vagina. The wall was stretched beyond its limit. This is a burst type injury. When the vagina bursts, it tends to burst in a linear way. He went on to imply that other factors like poor nutrition, smoking, and prior childbirth could have contributed basically leaving the jury with the idea that a sex trade worker would have not taken good care of her health and been fine with consenting to rough sex, even when intoxicated. In fact, the intoxication probably contributed to her own death, stating, quote, I have seen this effect. I have seen patients who have had substantial amounts of alcohol. In my clinical opinion, they do seem to have a higher pain tolerance from the alcohol alone. So this back and forth over the cause of injury to her vagina caused Carrie Ann of the prosecution to make a decision that would come back to haunt them and cause a complete uproar. At the initial autopsy, the medical examiner actually cut Cindy's pelvic region from her body and preserved it for later analysis before handing her remains over to be cremated. This part wasn't so egregious. It's gross to think about, but, but not that far out of line and actually pretty good practice. But what was egregious was that this preserved vagina, Cindy's most intimate and private part of her body, and her very dignity, was hauled into the court to show the jurors the details of this wound that caused her death. Can you imagine your mother, your sisters, your whoever's vagina sitting in a courtroom for people to look at and examine and discuss? This completely dehumanized Cindy to a point that I just, I just can't get past it. I mean, in this day and age, you can't do a 3D graphic or a PowerPoint presentation. You have to drag her vagina into the courtroom. That had never been done before in a court of law, and I hope to God it is never done again. 
The rough sex argument has been used about a hundred times in Canada since 1995. It's sometimes known as the Fifty Shades of Grey defense by people who claim that the injuries causing death happened during the course of consensual sexual activity. It's this thing called implied consent, which was the crust of the defense argument. Barton believed he could do what he wanted because he had paid Cindy $60. But there is no actual such thing as implied consent in Canadian law. And to make matters worse, what nobody, the Crown, not the defense, and not the judge did, was submit an application under Section 276 of the Criminal Code, otherwise known as the Rape Shield Law. This is basically a separate hearing where the Crown and defense can argue about what, if any, details of the victim's prior sexual history or whatever is admissible and what isn't. Normally, any discussion of a victim's prior sexual history is not admissible by reasons it prejudices the jury and that the victim is more likely to have consented or less worthy of belief. And then if anything is deemed admissible, the trial judge is to give very limiting instructions to the jury about the use of that evidence. Ultimately, this mistake fell as the fault of the judge, as they are instructed to be very careful about biases and stereotypes. Instead, Justice Robert Grasher allowed the jury of nine men and two women mostly Caucasians, save for one person of Asian descent and one person of color, to not only gawk at Cindy's vagina and hear it discussed as pushed beyond its limits, but also had no issue with the Crown and the defense referring to Cindy, not as Cindy, but as a native woman and a prostitute about 50 times during the trial. But what Justice Gracier did say is that the evidence found on Barton's laptop that contained a search history of gaping vaginas and extreme penetration and torture, that wasn't admissible because it wasn't considered lawfully obtained. So the jury never heard that. They also never heard any testimony about Barton's conduct after the murder. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And with all of that, the jury acquitted him of all charges. He was free to go. And defense lawyer Dino Botto said, quote, I really commend this jury for taking the time. They spent a month of their lives on this for attending and for their full attention every day and now spending a day and a half deliberating, which shows a very careful and thoughtful analysis by them. So Bradley Barton went back to his wife, who later left him in Mississauga, lost his job and declared bankruptcy in 2012 to avoid child support payments for his sons from his divorce. About a thousand people took to the streets of Edmonton two weeks later with picket signs reading justice for Cindy. Sex work is not a death sentence, stop the abuse, and community support, not colonial control. There were also calls to justice for Cindy from as far away as St. John's. Audrey Huntley from the activist group No More Silence said, We're coming together today to to honor Cindy Gladue, and in particular to express our outrage with regard to the verdict. And with regard to the assumption that someone who can consent to the kind of violence that Cindy experienced. Of the protests, Dino Botto had the nerve to say, what they've done is taken this case and tried to hold it up as an example of how Aboriginal women or Aboriginal people are mistreated by the criminal justice system. 
The jury in this case spent a day and a half deliberating, and it's unfair to them to suggest that the verdict was misguided or based on race. But a few people weren't really surprised by the verdict, including Cindy's mom, Donna. She figured the verdict was just par for the course, really. She had gone to court every day. She said, quote, I was in court by myself alone sitting there. And she had to see firsthand her daughter reduced to exhibits, these grainy surveillance footage, and referred to as a prostitute. In October 2018, the Alberta top prosecutors, 15 of them in total, went to the Supreme Court of Canada with an application for a new trial for Barton. Julie McGregor, who represents the Assembly of First Nations, said, quote, This case demonstrates with shocking and disturbing detail that these women and girls don't receive the same protections under the law. Rather, their privacy and equality rights get blatantly violated by the same individuals charged with ensuring the laws of this country are upheld. Prosecution lawyers allege that the trial judge made several errors and omissions in his charge to the jury regarding absence of motive, the accused conduct after the act, and what constitutes consent. Jean Tillett of the Women of the Maidies Nation called presenting Gladue's body tissue in court horrific. The dismemberment of an indigenous woman's body and the use of it as evidence at a trial was an assault by the state on an indigenous woman. It has shocked the conscience of the country, and I say it has brought this system of justice into disrepute. And on May 24, 2019, this appeal was granted and a new trial was ordered. And this decision was scathing for the original trial judge and the court Crown Attorney Kerian, stating in its conclusion, Our criminal justice system holds out a promise to call all Canadians. Everyone is equally entitled to the law's full protection and to be treated with dignity, humanity, and respect. Ms. Gladue was no exception. She was a mother, a daughter, a friend, and a member of her community. Her life mattered. She was valued. She was important. She was loved. Her status as an Indigenous woman who performed sex work did not change any of that in the slightest. But as these reasons show, the criminal justice system did not deliver on its promise to afford her the law's full protection, and as a result, it let her down. Indeed, it let us all down. Justice Andromash Karakasanis said, The fact that someone is a prostitute and may have engaged in sexual activity in a commercially based transaction on a previous occasion, how is that possibly re- relevant to the issues this jury had to decide? Justice Michael Moldalver said, The facts of past sexual history are permitted as evidence in narrowly limited circumstances because of the potential for prejudice, and in this case he said that prudence got all skipped over, and further that consent on one occasion does not extend to another, and that in the second encounter Barton admitted the act of inserting his hand into Gladys's vagina was more extreme and forceful. It would be a mistake of law to say that she consented the night before, Therefore, I can assume she's going to consent tonight. That is a classic error of law. This is rape mythology. As an additional safeguard going forward in sexual assault cases where the complainant is an Indigenous woman or girl, trial judges would be well advised to provide an express instruction aimed at countering prejudice against Indigenous women and girls. Now, of course, Peter Sanoff, one of the two lawyers now representing Barton, countered that Dino Botto had only elaborated on details of the sexual activity after the Crown told the court Gladue was a prostitute and shouldn't be re- retried because it was would amount to double jeopardy. Quote, in spite of the many important social issues raised by these parties in their submissions, I would suggest to you 
suggest to you that this appeal is actually what can go wrong when appellate courts forget their role in their adversarial system and ignore due process standards in an effort to reach outcomes they regard as more desirable. And good old Dino Botto made a statement with his law firm website stating, I think the Court of Appeal is making a political statement as much as a legal one. It's trying to correct every perceived inequality in sexual assault law in Canada with this judgment and went far beyond what the Crown on Appeal was arguing. And that's not fair to Mr. Barton. In early 2021, a now 52-year-old Bradley Barton was, was retried, but this time for manslaughter not wanting to risk the whole implied consent thing again, and because they had not been able to prove at the first trial that that a weapon had been used. This time, a Section 276 hearing was held that allowed both some of Cindy's previous sexual history with her being a sex trade worker, but also Barton's sexual history. At this trial, Barton testified on his own behalf, admitting that he had lied. I lied to a lot of people that morning. I lied to everybody. I didn't know what to do. I was in shock. My head was spinning. Waking up to that sight wasn't very good. Very pleasant thing to see anything like that. He said that he had had sex with Cindy on two nights and both nights he inserted his fist into her vagina. And then on the second night, uh, he fell asleep and was shocked to find her body in the tub the next morning. This time, the jury got to hear that in the three months before Cindy's death, Barton used his laptop computer to conduct more than nine hundred searches for pornography and about a week before her murder he searched seven times for information about vaginas being ripped or torn apart by huge objects he said that he didn't really know why he used those search terms saying it was probably easier for me to spell than stretched out my spelling is not very good torn means stretched to me On cross-examination, he testified, I didn't cause a woman's death, to which the prosecutor, Julie Snowden, said, you put your fist in Miss Gladue's vagina. She sustained a large wound. She bled to death. In what way did you not cause her death? If I did cause her death, I didn't know I did. I lied a lot. I was in shock. I panicked. I had no idea what to do. Julie responded, you thought you were buying her like a piece of property. You thought she was disposable. Your trial evidence is for the most part entirely fabrication. It is another one of your detailed lies. Mr. Barton, I suggest to you that the events that you described are preposterous. The reason why they sound so preposterous is because they are untrue. Julie had a version of events that she thought sounded a lot more truthful. Because Cindy was near unconscious from alcohol, he didn't ask her consent. You saw an opportunity. You decided to experiment with things you'd been Googling on the internet because you were interested in ripped or torn vaginas. Her vagina tore and she started bleeding. She started bleeding right where she was in the middle of the bed. Cindy was five foot five and Barton was massive compared to her, including the size of his hands. She said evidence showed that he then picked her up from the comforter from the bed, carried her to the tub where he unceremoniously dumped her. That's how the bloodstains got on the end of the comforter. You dumped her in the bathtub. That's why there's no blood between the bed and the bathroom. After you did those things, you sat in your room and calculated your options. You thought about how you were going to get out of this. Instead of getting help for her, you immediately started thinking about yourself. You certainly weren't thinking about Miss Gladue, were you? So 10 years and one month after Cindy Gladue bled to death in a hotel bathtub and after less than a day of deliberations, Barton was found guilty and sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. 
Justice Stephen Hillier imposed a sentence saying, in part, Mr. Barton was not a reliable historian or witness in general. His evidence included various attempts to exonerate his conduct, sustained deceits, self-serving distortions, rationalizing contradictions as figures of speech and in other colorable evasions. He took no steps to inform Miss Gludu of those risks, much less discussed his intentions with her in any effort to obtain consent. The expert evidence also supported that medical attention within about 20 to 30 minutes may have enabled Miss Gladue to survive this injury. Mr. Barton told, told a series of lies to various people, including police officers, in an unyielding attempt to avoid responsibility for Miss Gladue's death. No words can capture the tragedy and sorrow, particularly for the young family left suddenly without a mother. Justice Hillier said that Barton's actions and lies amounted to an intolerable level of blameworthiness. Donna McLeod, Cindy's mom, again attended the second trial. She told reporters outside the courtroom, Barton killed my daughter and I have attended every court I could. Some days I had to miss court because reliving the horrible death of my daughter was too physically and emotionally painful. I wanted to be there every day to show how loved she was. She hasn't actually been able to put Cindy to rest fully because that part of her pelvis is still filed away as evidence. No one understands the feeling of losing a child in the most horrible way and not being able to put her body and spirit to rest. Cindy's sister Marilyn gave a victim impact statement in the form of a poem that she had wrote and said in part, This morning as I sit here looking up at the sky, I keep asking myself why. How long did you suffer until the morning you were called home? The memories I have of you will always remain in my heart as we are apart. I love you, my sister. Come visit me from time to time until we meet again. Both the Crown and the defense have filed appeals regarding the sentence Barton received. The Crown noted in their notice of appeal, Justice Hillier erred in his consideration of aggravating and mitigating factors that 12 and a half years is demonstrably unfit. Uh, the sentence imposed is not proportional to the gravity of the offense and the moral blameworthiness of the offender. Botto, on the other hand, feels that the sentence is excessive and unreasonable in the circumstances. The family has made a formal request in a letter to have her pelvic tissue released from the medical examiner's office um, so that they can lay her fully to rest. The remains of my late daughter, Cindy Gladue, have been held by the office of the chief medical examiner's evidence for the past 10 years. I'm sending this letter to request her remains be returned to me and her family so we may lay her to rest. Her cousin, Prairie, said, It's been 10 years. My cousin, part of her remains are still locked away. We haven't been able to get closure, uh, go to ceremony. I think that's wrong. We haven't been able to lay her to rest because she's still sitting somewhere. Now get this. In June 2022, Barton's lawyers filed another appeal asking for a third sentence because police asked him to come to the station that day in 2011 to give a statement and never informed him that he was a suspect and was held for six and a half hours. His lawyer, Peter Sanoff, said, for a detention to be lawful, it must be brief in duration and not oblige the detainee uh, answer police questions. There is virtually no precedent for a length of detention that occurred here. While police may have wanted to obtain a recorded statement, the appellate had no legal obligation to provide one and could not be detained for that purpose. The appellate statements were inherently unreliable because police obtained them in breach of his right to counsel and that the laptop was found in his duffel bag, which uh, the police said they seized in order to preserve the evidence to obtain a search warrant. He argued that they didn't have reasonable grounds. All of the evidence was obtained in a manner that violated the appellate's charter rights. 
Now, I should note for any of you diehard listeners to this podcast out there that may have heard me talk about Gladue reports in other cases, Cindy's case did not have anything to do with that. Although Cindy's was definitely a landmark case, the particular case that started the Gladue hearings was against Jamie Tannis Gladue, who was from Reuben River, B.C. And that was the horrible rape and murder of Cindy Gladue. <sighs> that one was horrible. It's funny. It's Well, not funny, like haha funny, ironic funny. I tell these cases all professional and without much emotion, but when I research them, I find myself you know, kind of dabbing my eyes and getting choked up so many times. And usually it's reading victim impact statements that does it to me. And this one was really no exception. Cindy's sister asking her to come visit her from time to time till they meet again. That one just kills me. And when I read that they dragged her vagina into court, I, I just about lost it. I'm so glad that I have an acceptable outlet because walking into work and talking about it would get me sent to HR. So thank you so much for listening to me tell these people's and their families' stories to you, no matter how hard they are to listen to. I'm going to be back again next week with another infuriating case. Do your rate review thing and sign up for the exclusive content if you can't get enough of my ranting. And thank you again for listening. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details